Last week we looked at the textual history of the uh, Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, and we looked at how they were written, or at least how scholarship has determined that they were written. If you look up here, you'll see one of my charts that I had done many years ago when I was teaching this in the School of Christian Missions for the uh, General Board of Global Ministries. And you'll see this old chart kind of gives an idea. You've got Mark having been written first, the saying source being used as well by Matthew and Luke in the writing of their Gospels, along with the oral tradition from both communities in Matthew and Luke. Oral tradition being represented in blue, written being represented in red. So this chart sort of, sort of shows the origin of the contents. Mark is primary in that it was the first written. And Q, which is the saying source of the teachings of Jesus, is also a primary source. And then Matthew and Luke use both of them, but differently, in the production of their Gospels. And part of our study will be to notice when Mark, Matthew, and Luke are in total agreement, when Matthew and Luke are in agreement, but Mark is silent. When Matthew and Mark agree against Luke. <laughs> when Luke and Mark agree against Matthew. And when none of them agree. Sort of an interesting note. And that's just kind of on the side. What's the most important in our study will be to read and understand what the gospel writers or the synoptic gospels are saying to us about the life and the ministry of Jesus. And the chart that I handed out last time which kind of looks like that chart, is what you have to reference that. It's not very important to keep that uh, always in the forefront of your memory, but I did want to bring it up again. Uh, we were talking about various kinds of manuscripts that were used. And um, I'm going to pass around a page. Uh, just pass this book around. This is what you're seeing on the right side is a copy of one page of Codex Sinaiticus, which is a parchment manuscript of the entire New Testament. It's the, uh, one of the earliest complete copies of the New Testament. Dates to 350 or thereabouts A.D. and contains the entirety of the New Testament, uh, particularly in, for our interest, the Gospels. It was found at the monastery of St. Catherine at the foot of Mount Sinai. It had been in the library there for a very long time. It had been used extensively for its first five or six centuries of existence and uh, then was used more sparingly as time went on. It has lots of correctors, notes in the margins, um, and those are interesting in and of themselves in the textual history of the New Testament. You've also heard I referenced manuscripts called papyrus manuscripts, and our earliest copies, fragmentary copies, of the New Testament are found in the papyrus collection. And what I'm passing around now is a, let's see if I can find a better fragment. Okay, this I'll have to do, even though it's of John. I have one of Luke in that book that I'll pass around in a minute. This is a photo of one leaf, and a leaf means a page, of papyrus 45 from John chapter 10, verses 7 through 25. And this shows, and it's to size, and it shows pretty much what these papyrus fragments look like. Uh, the 
if you notice, Sinaiticus and all the other uncial manuscripts were all written in capital letters. That's what uncial means, all capital letters. <clears throat> the third thing I'm going to pass around is a very fascinating product of a friend who was in the process of uh, working on his doctoral dissertation. And he has the very ambitious project of producing what he calls the uncial archetype of the Gospel of Mark. And this he sent me for my own reference is chapters 1, verse 1 through chapter 9, 32. And what he has done is he's gone back and taken all of our earliest resources on the Gospel of Mark, all our earliest copies, and has done a textual study on them. And this gives you an idea of what an uncial manuscript may have looked like when it was new, minus the really nice pagination uh, of it. And this, by the way, these pictures, this one comes from the text of the New Testament by Kurt and Barbara Alon, who were two fabulous New Testament scholars. Uh, Kurt's no longer with us, Barbara is. And it's one of the standard texts in New Testament studies, particularly for textual criticism. The book that's coming around is a very similar kind of text, but it's more detailed in that it gives actually the contents of each of those manuscripts. And that's actually a, a text that is used today in courses on textual criticism. And, uh, but that's, those are those two resources there. And uh, Mother, you weren't here last time. This is uh, what papyrus looks and feels like. And what I'm passing around now on the left side, and I'm just going to let you look at this. I'm not going to refer to it much more. On the left side is from the Chester Beatty Collection, and it's Revelation chapter 13. You have to understand the Chester Beatty Collection is huge, absolutely huge. Some of it's located in Ireland. Some of it's located in Chicago. Some of it's located at Duke. And I, my experience, my first personal hands-on experience with manuscripts was in a class that I had in text, first class of textual criticism. And they took us into the rare book collection area vaults and they took out these glass plates. And inside these glass plates are these manuscript fragments. And I can remember Dr. Eford having us read the text with him out loud. And then looked at us and said, do you realize you have now read firsthand from a copy that was old, that is less than 150 years removed from when the document was written. And he said, you don't get any closer than this. You just don't. And it, I'm going to tell you, it was really a powerful, personal, spiritual experience. On the left is Chester Beatty, Revelation, a fragment of it. And on the right is uh, the ending of the Gospel of Luke and the beginning of the Gospel of John. And it's from Papyrus 75 of the Bodmer Collection. And it's early 2nd century, one of the earliest fragments of the Gospels we have. That's the Luke on the left. On and where right. was it you saw the... That was at Duke University. The Duke University Papyrus Collection is extensive. It's uh, new in that it's uh, a recent addition to textual critical studies. When I was there in the 90s, the Duke Papyrus Collection was just underway in terms of sorting through uncoded, un classified manuscripts. A large percentage of it is non-biblical, but a large chunk of it is. And they still haven't cataloged all of it. And I had a lot of fun, and that's in quotes, trying to help piece together several of those manuscript fragments. 
You've got to be careful about getting me started on textual critical stuff because it's one of my favorite fields of New Testament study. It's one of those few fields where you're dealing with piecing together the text of the New Testament, and it is a powerful personal experience, at least it is for me. How do you ever learn to read Greek? It's not that hard. You learn it in stages. You learn how to hear that. What you're seeing there is uncial Greek, yeah. and it's exactly what it looked like. That's those the, the font that is there is exactly what it looked like in the in the third century. This is what Greek, um, quote unquote, modern biblical Greek looks like here. I'll just turn it to uh, Matthew and pass one that way, and I'll pass one. Here's more going this way. Now, you'll notice in the text that I'm passing around now, the printed texts of the New Testament, they have spaces between words. That's helpful, isn't it? Once you've learned how to read Greek with the spaces between the words and you learn the language, you can then learn how to read it without spaces between the words. It's yet another step that you learn. It's difficult. But once you learn the tricks behind how, and the trick is to read it out loud. And just to read it out loud as you see it, and you'll understand it, if you know Greek well enough, you'll understand it, and, and you'll learn the tricks, and then you can do it internal, internally in your head. And you'll learn the tricks as to how to read without having the spaces between the words. It's, it's a good exercise when you're studying uh, other languages to try to learn to the point where you can do that. Um, it's not easy. It's not easy to do in English. And English is really heavily dependent upon having spaces between words and things. Greek less so. Anyway, uh, also uh, all capitalization issues. Uh, actually, I find it easier to read an all caps Greek text than, than to read a uh, uh, the mixed form of upper and lower cases. But that's just me. Did he actually number the verses? Or? No. Okay. Uh, versification, okay, what came first was chapter divisions. Chapter divisions were devised in the early Middle Ages, uh, 13, 1400. Verse divisions did not come along until the 1500s. The verse divisions and chapter divisions in the New Testament are late editorial editions. To the scripture. King James was in 1611. The chapters and verses were already in place by then. We're talking, though, during the Reformation period, the versification of the the entire Bible came into existence. Chapter divisions were pre existing. Um, And some divisions existed even before the chapters. Uh, some uh, Some paragraph divisions existed all the way back into the early New Testament copying period. And in fact, may have actually been in some of the uh, autographs. There may have been paragraph divisions at various important places, but not frequently because that took space, and space was expensive. Are there any other questions before we jump on in? Well, just from curiosity, how much has old Greek and new Greek changed? Someone who is fluent in modern Greek can read New Testament Greek and get by. They can understand what they're reading. The same is true even more so in Hebrew since Hebrew is a recovered language. Uh, Hebrew was a dead language up until uh, 75 years ago. Uh, it was you know, a dead in the sense that you know, Latin and ancient Greek are dead. 
but um, you know, scholars could read it, you know, religious people could read it, but um, um, was not spoken by normal people until the establishment of the state of Israel. And they made Hebrew the living language again by resurrecting it and adopting words in. If you are fluent in ancient, I mean in modern Hebrew, you can read any ancient Hebrew text if it's written in the script that you're used to. That's the one problem. Some of the very most ancient Hebrew texts are written in a different kind of script than the normal block script. Um, someone who was fluent in modern Greek can read ancient Greek and understand a large percentage of it. There's only a few grammatical problems that exist. So, um, and then someone who has a biblical Greek fluency can go to Greece and, and can talk about philosophy and the death and resurrection of Jesus, but they can't ask where the bathroom is. So, this book here starts most of the verses with Kai, K A I. What does that mean? Well, it means and. Oh, and? Kai, K A I means mm -hmm. and. It's the conjunction and mm -hmm. in Greek. All right. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. This is the beginning of Luke's gospel. It's his introduction. It's his statement of purpose. This is why he is writing. Notice he doesn't say, I, Luke. We talked about that last time. Authorship is a matter of historical tradition coming from Papias and from other early writers about who wrote the Gospel of Luke. But um, it doesn't identify the author within the text. Unlike the New Testament letters of Paul, many of which say, I, Paul, an apostle. That makes it kind of easy. Of course, the question then becomes, what do you do about those that claim I, Paul, an apostle? But there may be reasons to suspect that Paul actually didn't write it. That's another question altogether. Um, here, Luke doesn't tell us. Now, it does tell us, in theory, to whom he is writing, most excellent Theophilus. And the question was raised last time, is that an individual or is it a general audience? Uh, because Theophilus means lover of God. Does that, is that therefore a general term for any person who might be reading this who is a lover of God? Or might there have been a person named Theophilus? Well, we know there were people with that name. There were historic people, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, who bared the name Theophilus, and that was their name. So it's possible either way, and you'll find New Testament scholars who make the argument one way or the other. I find it totally irrelevant, but it is an interesting question. Notice what he says in the very first verse. Since many have undertaken, since many have undertaken, to set down, that means to write, an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us. Well, by this point in time, when Luke is writing, we know that Mark had been written. We know that the saying source had been written. 
So Mark and Q exist. But he says many, and many is never used for less than four in Greek. So, so there must be other written accounts that he knows of that he is now going to write parallel to, independent of, or drawing from. But he himself is going to write. It could be that Matthew comes before Luke. So maybe Matthew was written before Luke. And that's also one of the ones that he knows about. However, many scholars doubt that Luke actually had read Matthew. And there are reasons for that. When we get around to reading and comparing Matthew and Luke together, uh, and you'll notice some of the differences, as many scholars say, those differences argue against Luke having known Matthew or Matthew having known Luke? Uh, possibly. But I'll wait until we get there and we can decide for ourselves. We don't have to uh, just take hook, line, and sinker, what a New Testament scholar tells us. We can decide that for ourselves. Would it be that he wasn't referring to written word, he was referring to rumors and so forth, and he was going to write it down rather than take word of mouth? Yes, except that the language used in, chapter, in verse 1 here really speaks to written materials. Since many have undertaken to set down. The wording set down. It might say draw up. The New Living right, says write accounts. Compile. The international says draw up. Draw up, which yeah. is another way of saying write out. Set down, write down is the concept here, and it and it means to write. It means to write out. These are written documents that he's talking about, written accounts that he's talking about. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account, not haphazard, not unthinking, not just here, 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 but an orderly structured account. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, well, that's an interesting way of putting it, fulfilled among us. The author is including himself in the very community that has received Christ. That doesn't mean that he was there. He never claims to have been there. You have to understand that they understood a strong continuity between themselves, even in 75 AD, let us say, themselves where they were then and the life and times of Jesus in the 30s. They see a continuity of community, a continuity of experience between themselves and the times of Jesus. Between themselves and the, those who experienced the, the life and presence of Christ and his resurrection and appearances. This, this phrasing, this phrasing about fulfilled among us, I think reflects that idea. That they viewed that Luke is part of the church which views itself as being in continuity with the, the very events of Jesus in his life, his teachings, his death, 
his resurrection, his post-resurrection appearances. He doesn't see any discontinuity, any disconnect. And therefore, these events have been fulfilled among us. This is important because this organic understanding of the living word, of the word of God present in their midst, being written down now, this, this, this organic understanding existed through the New Testament period. And it's only later that we start having trouble with it. And when I say later, I mean Reformation period. The church understood the word of God, the New Testament particularly, as a living document. Very much open to interpretation and supplementation. Now the actual books may very well be fixed, and by 368 they were fixed. But, and this is critical, but how they were interpreted and how they could be supplemented by what became known as holy tradition in the Catholic Church uh, is, is still with them, even today in the Catholic Church. But was definitely with the entire church up until the time of the Reformation when concepts of a fixed, locked down, um, holy scripture, interpretation, uh, inspiration comes to an end and there can be no more inspiration at all. It's just what was written. Hence you get the Reformation concept of the sola scriptura. Only scriptures are the source for our faith. Tradition has no place at all. That idea is the Reformation concept. Prior to that, we have this idea of events that have been fulfilled among us with Luke being able to think of himself as being part of the church that has continuity with the, the people who actually experienced the events. He wasn't there himself, but his community of faith is in continuity with that which experienced it. That's an interesting thought. And again, brings to question this current New Testament scholarly fad of identifying dispert, distant, non-communicative groups, often at conflict with each other in the early New Testament period, where the group here in Rome doesn't speak to the group over here in Greece, and they certainly don't speak to the group in Antioch and they don't speak to the group in Alexandria. They have their own areas with their own traditions and their own stories and their own practices and never the multiples will blend until later. Well, Luke is writing this in a Gentile community in Asia Minor or Greece and he feels to be in continuity with the, the biblical Palestine Jewish community where Jesus lived. So that also, when I've read Fulfilled before, I think of the Hebrew Scriptures. Yes. But you're saying this is more. Mm -hmm. yeah, Hebrew yeah. Scriptures tell us about Jesus, then Jesus fulfills them, and the events about Jesus become fulfilled both in the, in the early church and all the way through, at least at this point, to Luke's day. Absolutely. Just as they were handed down, on, no, let's back up and read verse 1 into verse 2. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Now pause there again. 
Notice the continuity, the sequence of handing on to us. Admission, we weren't there, but these things, these events were handed on to us. These experiences were handed on to us from the beginning by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Cool. Luke in his talking, in his articulation here, is linking, tying himself and his community where he lives, the churches of which he is a member, and himself into a sequence or a chain that interconnects himself with Jesus and the early community of Jesus in Jerusalem and the resurrection and the resurrection appearances and all of that. And going back all the way to the very beginning. He's tying himself. He's a Gentile author. Tying himself into this tightly. And identifies that he, what he's getting here has been handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. That's where this stuff is coming from. He's getting ready to write his gospel based on information that comes to him from eyewitnesses and servants of the word. But don't you think maybe being confirmed by the Spirit of God and that's the way it all I I agree. I think uh, definitely he understands that. That's part of the idea that this is an organic interconnectedness. And notice he's talking about even those who have written before him. They have written in this continuity stream. We are in this continuity stream. I am in this continuity stream. We're all part linked into the same community of faith. And it is by that the Holy Spirit, as you, as you well put it, that it is by the Holy Spirit that this is true. The Holy Spirit creates the church. It, it ties the people of God together and makes us one in the body of Christ. It makes us one body in Christ. We may have different members and different gifts and graces, but we are one in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. So here he's saying these other people have written this and they are in the same continuity stream as us. So now... I too decided after investigating everything carefully after investigating everything carefully from the very first to write an orderly account for you most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed so that's the purpose they have written ahead of me. They are in the same continuity stream as I am. Now I am going to write down, having researched this, having studied this, having investigated everything carefully from the very first. So he has, he's coming right out and saying, I'm a part of this community. Notice he includes within that community those other writings. 
And at least two of them, Mark and Q, come from two different communities. One in Rome and one in Palestine. And he views them all as part of the same community. The same continuity. I like that word, continuity, because it, it brings up the connectedness. What they have, we have received. And what we have received, they have handed on to us. Questions before we move on? Yes. Yes, please. How many people could write back then? You know, I'm, I'm being funny now, but it seems to me there was probably only a few people could write, so therefore it had to be orally conveyed to the writer and each person talking. It's like passing something down on the line. Right. I can tell you something, you pass it down. By the time it gets to the end, it's The changing. old Jack Parr yeah. joke right. where he would tell one at one end and, and, and it come out different than the other. he's referring to. We get all this gibberish coming in. Yes to, and no. One person that can write, you know, because they wouldn't all write, obviously. And yes and no. Uh, it's a conjecture as to how many people could write back then. However, um, the, degree, yeah. the degree of literacy has been continually revised upwards over the decades of study on the subject. It was used to believe that fewer than 10% of the ancient world was literate. That has been continually revised upwards. And we read in Sunday school with the kids that uh, only the boys went to school. The girls stayed home and just learned the, the kitchen duties. Traditionally, that was the truth. That was the case. However, that didn't necessarily mean that girls would not learn how to read and write. They often did. They were often trained, especially the wealthy women. Many of them learned how to read and write, at least basically. Certainly read. Now, you have to understand there's a difference between being capable of writing and being a scribe. Being a scribe was a profession. And you learn, you learn how to write these highly detailed manuscripts like this, um, like you see in these pictures here in this book. You learn how to write these detailed manuscripts as your profession. How to make the, and you learned in such a way that you can even date and place the writing of a manuscript based on the way in which the letters are formed. Isn't that interesting? That's how precise of an artwork and profession it was. Actually, lots of times, the people that was writing it down wasn't the one that was doing the thinking. Was the, trans, in, somebody was transcribing it. Correct. For instance, while Paul was both capable of reading and writing, he was not a scribe. And therefore, while we do have some things that he wrote by his own hand, the end of several of his letters, possibly, in fact, probably the entirety of the letter to Philemon. Um, in fact, most of his letters were dictated to a scribe who wrote them down. Paul would then take it, read it, and then pick up again or make his own little notations. And we have examples of that. Um, uh, that would be true in many cases. Uh, in, in many cases. 
but there, you eventually have to have people. And there were people who were, their job was to write. And you would go to them and you would dictate to them what you'd want written down and they would write it down. But the percentage of, of um, people who could at least read and write rudimentarily has been revised upwards repeatedly. And I've seen figures as high as 35 to 40%. Depending on where you lived and what language you're talking about. Tying on to that, you said it was expensive mm -hmm. to, for the materials. Right. So therefore, uh, I think it would be limited again. Uh, how many? The capacity to read. To the capacity to read and write rudimentarily existed to about 35 percent of the population in the Roman Empire, which would be Greece and Rome and the other cosmopolitan quote-unquote areas of the empire. It would decline heavily outside of imperial jurisdiction and in the barbarian lands to the far north and the far west would also decline. But in the core of the empire where Christianity was developing, in the Gentile world, it was about 35 percent. That's the guess currently based on what we know of the society and the fact that you would often find little tiny little documents and archaeologists are finding them all the time tiny little documents that either were commissioned or were just simple little notes that someone had scribbled down you can tell the difference because something that was commissioned has this beautiful pen personship, whereas something that's been scribbled down usually doesn't, not even close. That's why I take this to mean the same thing, that he took all these sources. Now, some of the sources was, were oral, as can be seen demonstrated here. Some of it was oral tradition. Some of it is talking to people. It may well be that some of it's talking to people who were there. Hey, what did you see when your son was crucified? I mean, it, it could be that. Temporarily speaking, that's possible. That's certainly possible. Now, is it necessarily that that's what it was? No. But it's possible that it could be something like that. Much of it, there, there are chunks of it that is oral, but there's a whole bunch of it that isn't. When Matthew and Luke misspell the exact same word the way Mark misspells it, you know they're copying Mark. So that, and, and, and that happens. Happens less frequently in Luke, more frequently in Matthew. Um, I think that some of it is oral. Some of it is written we don't have. Some of it is written we do have. That's my opinion. Others? Yes? Well, the misspellings, could that be the individual dialect in each community? Um, or is it, is it, yeah, it's like a proper name spelled yes, different ways well, in different dialects? Greek, Greek has highly standardized written language, highly standardized written language with a spelling convention that existed, particularly because you have to be very careful because if you change the ending spelling, you change the ending meaning. And that's an inflected language. And so, so instead of he went, it becomes they went if you change the spelling, and that becomes problematic. Um, but there are other, it, the stem of a word would not change regardless of 
a dialect. But um, we're talking pretty much one dialect here. And yet they did it the same way Mark did. And they don't do it that way elsewhere. That's the trick. When Matthew and Luke are quoting Mark and they reproduce the same misspelling, and then elsewhere they use the same word, but they spell it rightly. That's the indicator. That's the real indicator that they're quoting directly from Mark from a written source. Another way that we know that, for example, that Q was written is the sequence of the stories is pretty much the same between Luke and Matthew. How likely is it if they're just pulling oral stories from all over the place, all jumbled up, how, how likely is it they're going to reproduce the same sequence of stories? It's not very likely unless the document, unless it was written down in a document. So that's another indicator. Some things are oral, and you can tell it. And we're getting ready to enter a section that is absolutely oral. And it's unique to Luke. Anything else? In the days, verse 5, in the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was a descendant of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. Now, they have to, you have to establish that they are both blameless before the Lord because they don't have any kids. And that is contradictory. That's contradictory to the expectation. Ooh. Well, they're blameless before the Lord even despite the fact that they don't have kids. It's because she's barren. And, and you can think of other folk... This sounds like a parallel, doesn't it? To Abram and Sarai, doesn't it? Sounds very much like a parallel. Very similar concept, story, idea, situation. There's a, little, there's a few details in here that should be pointed out. Um, the source for this is absolutely Hebraic. In other words, while Luke is Greek-speaking, Gentile author, probably from Syria... And there's reasons for that. We'll talk about that later. Um, he's, he's a Gentile-born, Greek-speaking person who's writing to Greeks and sometimes shows a lack of understanding of the circumstances in Palestine, either currently or in Jesus' day specifically. Um, here he's telling something that is very much Hebrew-dependent. He, is, he belongs to the priestly order of Abijah. Now just keep that in mind because that's going to become important in a little bit. Verse 18. Once when he was serving as priest before God and his section was on duty. More information. This concept, these sections, these services in the order of Abijah. This, is, this stuff here comes straight out of the Hebrew experience of the priests serving in the temple. 
Once when he was serving as priest before God and his section was on duty, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. Now at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Again, all of these references, all of these references are to the temple in Jerusalem and reflect an understanding, a, a close understanding of things Hebrew. This comes from a Gentile. He's getting this from actually someone who knows this kind of stuff. And the story, you know, it, it's, it's, it's being told folksy almost. Yet with references to, to the biblical event in question. Um, you can find references to, for example, the priestly order of Abijah in First Chronicles in chapter 24. And um, there were 24 orders in the temple service. And Abijah is the eighth order. Okay, just so that you know that. And we'll come back and look at that in a little bit because this information we're reading here gives us the capacity to actually date the birth of Jesus. Well, that's interesting. That's interesting. We'll come back to that later. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord. Hmm. Agalos kurio is the word in Greek, uh, messenger of the Lord. And not Yahweh, by the way, but kurios, simple Lord. Hmm. Hmm. An, an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and fear overwhelmed him. Well, I would imagine so. I mean, this is not something that you saw every day. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Darn it. Who wants to be John now? <laughs> he must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Wow. Why? Why? Makes him really important. I mean, Jesus... With the great wine and all that, why couldn't John? John was a different kind of guy. <laughs> John was a different kind of guy, yeah. But it's the same angel was telling us that told Mary. Now, good question as to why he has to do this. He can't drink wine or strong drink. Good question. He is different than Jesus. He has a role to play. He has a job he's going to do. Look, the poor guy, he can't have wine or strong drink, and yet he's going to be eating locusts. I mean, come on, that's gross. You're going to have to drink wine or strong drink in order to eat locusts. 
the guy who's so wild, how they on That'll run your that'll run your appetite right there, right won't there. it? Right there. Right there. <laughs> he must have looked like a wild man. Yeah. Well, that's how he's described. Yeah. That's how he's later described later, but that's anticipating. He must never drink wine or strong drink, even before his birth. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. This guy is special. He will turn many people. He will turn. Many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God with the spirit and power of Elijah. Aha! Hmm. Hmm. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people. Prepared for the Lord. That's his job. To fulfill the messianic expectation that Elijah would come before the Messiah. That's his job. He wasn't really self-indulgent because that wasn't... He's described as being focused in on his job, his identity, his nature. And, And... by virtue of his birth, Mutta, descendant of Aaron, his dad is a, high, is a priest, the order of Abijah. Guess what he's going to get to do when he grows up? He's supposed to be a priest. That's what you did. You followed in your parents' footsteps. And he has that double strength of being really laid out and ready to go. Possible future high priest. And he becomes... Following the character as a type of Elijah, the, the, the forerunner of the Messiah. That's his role, that's his job, as articulated here in this oral tradition. So, as we'll see later on, and I'm anticipating, Mark begins with the baptism of Jesus and the proclamation of John the Baptist. Here, Luke goes, goes Mark one better. And he starts with John the Baptist. And gives him his job description right here. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know that this is so? For I'm an old man, and my wife is getting on in years. My goodness, it's like a broken record. Sounds just like Abram, Abram complaining to, 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 the, to the Lord. How am I going to have this happen? I'm old, geez old. But he was still praying for his son. Yeah. He was asking for Prayer a kid. Has been yeah. Isn't that interesting? But here he's doubting it. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. There you go. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I wow. <laughs> That's interesting. I stand in the presence of God. Just this is totally as a, here you're getting the preacher in me. That right there is a fascinating statement. 
The angel Gabriel says, I stand in the presence of God. We as Christians proclaim, we stand in the presence of God. When we're in the presence of Christ Jesus our Lord, when we're in the worship of the community of the faith, as we live day by day, we can say what then only the angel could say. And he uses that as his justification, as his credential for being able to say this. I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. To bring you this euagelion, uh, literally. This gospel. You notice, Yahweh was a little more lenient on Abram when Abram whined and complained and didn't believe it. And, you know, here, no, one strike and Zechariah is in trouble. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak until the day these things occur. Yeah. Now this is part of the oral tradition that Luke receives. It comes from some source that is very familiar with the practices of worship in the temple, the priestly worship structure and system, what the various courses were, uh, the course of Abijah being one of them, the eighth of them. And it uh, seems to be familiar with their job and what they're supposed to do, go in and use incense in the process of the worship of Yahweh. Seems to have some conception of what was supposed to go on. So it's not, it has some connection here with Hebraic life, especially worship life. And you also have to remember this was written after the destruction of the second temple. So it's an echo back to a time period before uh, its destruction. Way before as the case may be. Questions? Well just a, a comment real quick. Um, when I took a class in Jewish mysticism in college some years ago um, one of the things that the rabbi who was teaching the course told us in relation to, because we were back and forth between Jewish and Christian scripture all the time, was that this phrase, I stand in the presence of God, was to the Hebrew people in their context uh, the kind of thing that you know makes you fall down on your knees and... and freak out because there were only four archangels who were allowed to stand in the actual presence of God. And so when one of these messengers came to you and announced that as their credential, you weren't supposed to do what Zechariah did. No you were to, there was no question. I mean, it was like orders from on high. The, the mystical credential that he announces is something that is just so was so ingrained in the Hebrew people at that time that it was like an all-access pass. <laughs> it was just wow. That, it was it. Which elevates that whole conception. Elevates that more. whole conception, yeah. And I stand in the presence of God, of Yahweh. I, 
First of all, you're doing something. First of all, you're in the presence of Yahweh. Wow. Standing? You don't stand. You're kneel, face on ground. <laughs> well, there's angels for that. But to stand. But to stand. But to stand in the presence of God. Name the archangels besides Gabriel, Michael. Gabriel, Michael, Raphael, and Uncia, or, or Uriel. Yeah, right. Here somewhere. And Jesus. Well, Jesus is not Jesus, an angel. Jesus yeah, is not, not an angel. angel. He's no, higher. Jesus is, a, Jesus is God. I mean, Jesus I was, is a person who can stand. Yeah. Uh, the, <laughs> that's different. <laughs> Jesus sits at, at God's right hand. Jesus gets to sit on the throne. I, I was going to ask you, why is the right side of the incense, and why did he appear there instead of the left? Does it mean anything? I'm sure it does. Um it may be one of those things in the Hebraic roots, standing at the right side is where you speak for. I mean, if you had someone who was going to speak for you, they stood at your sat at your right side. It's your principal speaker. So that's why your podium's on the right side. Well, when you're sitting there facing it, it is. It would have been the same yeah. if, if Zachariah was standing here. It would have been to the right side. Yeah. To the right side. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. Meanwhile, yeah. let's keep going. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondered at his delay in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He kept motioning to them and remained unable to speak. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. So he didn't go immediate. He had to wait till the time of his service was ended. After those days, now that phrase right there, after those days. Anybody, how, how does, uh, uh, the New Living Translation reads that as soon afterward. This one just says after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. After this. Yeah. Any other rendering? In these days. In these days? These. These days. Any other rendering? Metaditatus tas ameras after those days. Very indeterminate period of time later. Not immediately though, but fairly soon. You might say, if it's Monday, you might say by Friday, but not Tuesday afternoon. Okay, that kind of idea. It's fairly soon, but not necessarily immediately. Nor is it a long time later. It's an indeterminate, but fairly short period of time later. After those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she remained in seclusion. She said, this is what the Lord has done for me when he looked favorably on me and took away the disgrace I have endured among my people. Again, for a woman to be barren or to not have children, for whatever reason, was a disgrace for both of them, but especially for the woman. Especially, yeah, it could have been his fault. 
It could easily have been his fault. Could easily have been his fault. But apparently, he goes home, they do what husband and wife do, and she conceives. She conceives. Now, as was the case with Abram and Sarah, we're not talking about any kind of a virgin birth. We're talking about divine help in the conception process. And apparently we're talking about God reversing menopause. So right there you've got, you've got a biological miracle. If she's gotten on in years. Now there's been a lot of speculation as to how old Elizabeth would be. We don't know. Well, she was a cousin of, of, of Mary, so maybe what, 15 years above Mary. Or if Mary well, if she's Mary, getting on in years and Mary's only 14 years old, yeah. probably not. The assumption is, is that she was post-menopause, which is why this is such an incredible event and why it was, had been such a disaster that she hadn't had kids. Or it could be that she was just coming up on the menopause or entering it. The other end of the fertility zone from Mary. Could be. We don't know. All she says is, this is what the Lord has done for me when he looked favorably on me and took away the disgrace I have endured among my people. In the sixth month, the sixth month, well, she was five months pregnant. Now she's in her sixth month of pregnancy. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Notice, not married yet. Engaged. Betrothed to. The word here, virgin, Parthenos in Greek. Parthenos means quite literally that. The word in the quotation from the Hebrew scriptures where it talks about a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, there the word is alma, which is Hebrew for young maiden just not quite, but on the precipice of being capable of conceiving. <laughs> Emphasis on young, as well as maiden. But that's not the word used here. Here, it's entirely in Greek. So there's no question as to the meaning. It means virgin. To a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. Of the house of David, the virgin's name was Mary. He comes to her. And Gabriel's kind of busy, isn't he? Yeah. He goes to the temple, sees Zechariah, and he goes all the way up into Galilee to see Mary. Six months later, though. The virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. And right in... Um, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Anybody have a different translation? This is highly favored. Greetings, you are highly favored. You are highly favored. How does the King James read that? Same thing, favored. Same thing. Uh -huh. 
Uh, the could be translated as Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Ave Maria. Some people say that doesn't come from Scripture. Yes, it does come from right there. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. Well, I mean, you know. Wouldn't you? Yeah. (laughs) Kind of an understatement, if you ask me. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So kind of Gabriel kind of picks up on that she doesn't comprehend what's going on here. She's curious as to the meaning of it. He either she's done something to make him think that she's afraid, or he's just assuming, hey, look, I'm an angel, she ought to be afraid of me. So but it doesn't actually say that she was terrified. It says she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. Wow. If anything fits the expectation for the coming of the Messiah... In all of its various forms, that does it right there. And then some. I mean, there is nothing in Hebrew expectation that says that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Nothing. Not directly. The other, there are other expectations, but not that. But look at this. Uh, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David right there. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That, that, that is a continuation of the promise that was given to David. Mary said to the angel, how can this be? Now, she ought to, she, she, she ought to understand that, you know, this is kind of a dangerous thing to do. <laughs> Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. There, that concept of overshadowing is, uh, is, is, is one of protection, shielding. Kind of think of a mother bird with its wing out over its little chick. To overshadow, to, to, to cover with an umbrella, to... to to shield. That's kind of the idea here. The Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, because of the overshadowing, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth, any other word there other than relative? Kinswoman. Kinswoman. Relative. Mm -hmm. And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age. Her 
her cousin is how King James renders it, doesn't it? Cousin. They are related, but they're not direct cousin. They're close. Maybe second cousin twice removed or something. Elizabeth in her old age. It kind of limits the minimum here to menopause for her. Has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. So Elizabeth now serves as sort of the stamp of seal that you can trust that this is going to happen to you, Mary, since Elizabeth is already six months pregnant. If she can be six months pregnant on the other end of menopause, you can become pregnant on the prior to menarche. <laughs> Or younger. Yeah, but if she's just a virgin, that leaves it open for being older. Could be. Uh, tradition does say that she was very young. Mm -hmm. Very young. That's why they didn't punish her when she, she asked why, because she, she's just a young girl. She's not old like Sarah and Elizabeth. For nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said... Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. I want to tell you, that took, that took some gumption there to be able to say, okay, all right. Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. That took faith. I mean, she's been approached by an angel. She's been told she's going to conceive and bear a son. She's a virgin. She's not yet married to Joseph. How is this going to happen? How is it possible this can happen? And then God said, the angel says, you're going to be overshadowed by the Most High, and you're going to conceive and bear a son. But children are more trusting. The young are more trusting than us. Uh, yeah, older people are more ready to have faith. Yeah. Gabriel didn't have to say, yeah. I have been standing in the presence of God. They haven't seen all the bad stuff. <laughs> when she was very young, she might have just thought that's the way it happened. Could be. Interesting, interesting conjecture there. Maybe she was so young that she, you know, no, stork, no. Uh, I mean, you know. Don't talk back. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no talking back. She didn't get muted. <laughs> but it, you're right. It could, it, it, could, it could be that she just didn't know any other way. Possibly. Um, by in that culture, though, by the time you're 12, 13, 14 years old, uh, your mother has taught you probably. Well, and she said she wasn't a virgin, so she had to know what that was. Oh yeah, she said she was a virgin. Yeah, I mean, yeah. She knew what a virgin. She was. knew what a virgin was. Yeah, she knew that. It's 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 interesting. The the the, the Annunciation unto Mary is a fascinating story. It has parallels in Hebrew scripture. It's a, it, it, it is beautiful. It is a beautiful story in terms of literature. Just, just taken on its literary value, it is a beautiful story. It also reflects some interesting theology in that the, the, the essential nature of the virgin birth is that God overshadows Mary so that the son 
to be born will be holy. A child to be born will be holy. He will be called the Son of God. Interesting theological statement there on the nature of Jesus. I mean, we've already been told he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and that he will be, you know, he'll get the throne of his ancestor David, he'll become king. I mean, that's all important, but then it has to go further and indicate something about the nature of the child. The child will be holy. He will be called the Son of God. And to achieve that, the Most High will overshadow, protect you. Hmm. Now, our friends in the Roman Catholic Church have devised this concept, um, the doctrine um, of the Immaculate Conception of Mary, saying that she was conceived without sin so that therefore she could produce Jesus without any taint of concupiscence of sin. I don't see the need for it with this. I don't see the need for it. Unless the phrasing had been, the power of the Most High has already overshadowed you. He doesn't say that. It's actually, in the future tense, will overshadow you. Senior moment. There's a, a another theology that's related to the to, to verse 38 that I've heard. It says that Mary said, "Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word." That that implies a couple of things. First of all, um, Mary consented to bear Jesus. This wasn't an involuntary thing. She consented to, to participate in this, which changed the whole nature of the human condition. Whereas Adam and Eve had disobeyed God's word, Mary was obedient to God's word and therefore was an active participant in the redemption of humanity and in, of all creation. Well, that's beautiful. And exactly. so, and that, and 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 so. We owe Mary a lot in this story. Yeah. <laughs> if, if it weren't for her, you know, consenting to participate in this monumental, incredible act of God in the mm -hmm. world. Because remember, humans have free will. We have the capacity to say no whenever we're, you know, invited by God to participate. Mary didn't say no. She said yes. As a matter of fact, the writer Kathleen, um, oh, I'm having a senior moment. Um, Kathleen Norris has written a beautiful poem called Mary Said Yes. And it's all about what happens. And so, yeah, that's a part of the story here for me that really, really resonates a lot. It's a very powerful statement. It, in many respects, is, I would classify this as a moment of supreme liberation for Mary personally and for women and for all of humanity because here she is under the authority of her parents God offers her this role and she says yes that is and she was capable of doing it she's an agent capable of doing it 
And she places, therefore, by this supreme act of faith, an example for all people to do the same thing, to say yes to the call of God, to say yes to the responsibility for bearing Jesus. This is one of my favorite Christmas Eve messages. Say yes, as Mary said yes, to bearing Christ into the world. She bore him through her womb. We are called to bear Christ through the womb of our hearts to a broken and hurting world. We can be just like Mary in that sense and give ourselves freely to this calling to be overshadowed and to give to the world that which God gives to us, the very love of God in Jesus Christ. She becomes, in a sense, in a very powerful sense, the first apostle. Just as Mary Magdalene is the first proclaimer of the empty tomb, Mary, Mary, his mother, becomes the first bearer of Christ to others. In the Eastern Orthodox tradition, she is known as the Theotokos, the God-bearer. That is sometimes translated as mother of God. That's a fairly poor English translation of the conception, of the idea here. Yes, she's the mother of God in Jesus Christ, but most importantly, the concept is the bearer of God into this world. And we are all called to bear God into this world. Hence, she becomes a fabulous example for all of us. And she didn't question she didn't say, how are you going to keep people from talking about me? She didn't. Her question was not. She just said yes. Her question was not, how am I going to be um, favored in this or advanced in this? Her, her question was, how is it even possible? I'm, I'm a virgin. But when she accepted the role. Yeah, 38. She didn't, she didn't have any questions. There she did no it without any reservation. Yeah. She said, here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Period. That's faith. I mean, That's faith. That, is, that If you want an example of faith, that is it. Um, I, there, have been, there have been theologians over the last several decades, uh, last 50 years especially of the church, who have really really opposed this whole passage. They've seen it as demeaning of women. Uh, I'm thinking especially of Bishop Spong here, but there are others. I totally disagree. I completely disagree. I think it glorifies. This, lib- this, is a, this is a liberation passage. God chooses Mary of all people. Not some wealthy heiress of some great empire. Not some princess. Just a simple person. Well, she wasn't that simple. She came from Aaron's line. Well, she line. she was she was a they, descendant. They really oh, you're talking about that's Elizabeth. Well, uh, she was. She is she is related to. She is descended from David as well as from Aaron. She yeah. has multiple descendancies, but that was true for just about anybody cousin, in the country. Second yeah. cousin, first cousin. Yeah, but, but she's still a very per, a person of fairly mean estate. She's, she's not wealthy. 
She's not well positioned in society. She's not a daughter of the high priest. She she lives in Nazareth, uh, up in the Nazareth but area. The thing is, we don't know. They don't say that much about it. It says that she lives in Galilee. Nothing good comes from Galilee. That's what they say. That's what they say. <laughs> I mean, she goes to Galilee. To, back up beyond Galilee. That's way up in the north. Not down in the power centers of Jerusalem. Not even in Tiberias. Along the shore of, of the Sea of Galilee. We're talking up in the hill country. In Nazareth. In Galilee. Good Jews belong in Jerusalem. That's where the Messiah should be born. Guess what happens? They end up going to Bethlehem for the birth. But, but that, that's where she is. That's where she lives. Not exactly what you would expect. Well, we actually got 38 verses done. That's really good. We got all the way through the Annunciation unto Mary. Um, I'm going to tell you what we'll do. Next time when we come back, we'll go ahead... And hit the Annunciation to Joseph from Matthew. All right. Matthew. Yeah. We'll we'll catch. Yeah. We'll catch now the Matthian side of the story. Now you notice in in Luke it's the Annunciation unto Mary. In Matthew the parallel it's an Annunciation unto Joseph. So we'll we'll hit it. We'll hit that side. It won't take the whole time. We'll hit that the parallel there. We'll then come back and finish out the, the event here in Luke all the way down to the birth, and then we'll go over and hit it in Matthew as well. There's nothing in Mark yet to be parallel to. But I, did, I, 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 I think that's fascinating. We've now finished the, the initial annunciation portion uh, unto Mary. Now we've got to go see what the angel says to Joseph. <laughs> the other side of the story. Well, well okay. Marie, my question about yes. Mary and over uh, being overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, huh? you know, raising children, there's mistakes parents make. And I have to wonder whether Mary made any mistakes. And I think... How do you discipline the Son of the Most High? You know. <laughs> when he didn't what pick up his Legos, did she have to spank him? <laughs> The magazine that I wrote. But he was perfect. We, 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 we had this cartoon, and it was Joseph and Jesus as a little boy. And Joseph is standing in the door of Jesus' room, and he says, All the toys are everywhere. And he says, Jesus, look at this mess. Were you born in a. Oh, never mind. <laughs> Yeah, a very good question. Uh, I don't, yeah, that. So then that brings up divinity and humanness. Humanity. So how yeah. do you, I can understand why the first Christians yeah. had trouble he was also. Perfect. He was yeah. loyal. There's a difference between, I will say this, there is a difference between what we proclaim theologically about Jesus and what what was manifested as a child. Um, you probably would benefit from reading something like 
the infancy gospel of Thomas, the Protoevangelium of James. I think you would, would you like to borrow that? Because I think you'd find it fascinating reading. It's interesting stuff. It's weird stuff. What is it? You can own money. It wasn't his other news that he wanted to read. No, I wanted her to read. The Son of God till he died in 150 years. Um, well, I mean, they, 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 were, they were proclaiming it here in Luke's gospel in 75 AD. And Paul was proclaiming it in the 50s. Well, he wasn't here, though. What? Paul wasn't even there. No, but Paul in the 50s AD was proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, which my point is, is that this is a proclamation that started awfully early. It's not a late addition the proclamation of Jesus as the Son of God, as God incarnate in human flesh, is a very can be dated very early. It's not a late addition that comes 150 or 400 years later, as is true with the Gautama Buddha, for instance. In, in, no, it's something that was applied to Jesus within 20 years of his death, if not before. So that's, I mean, that's something that you got to deal with. Now, was it? Was it known by anybody other than Mary and Joseph? It's Probably what, not. That's what I said. While he was alive. Oh, while he was alive. Nobody knew who he was, so they didn't have to deal with that. Mm. Well, Mary knew. Well, Mary and Joseph, <laughs> yeah, well, the implication in here is that Elizabeth knew because of John. John the Baptist John jumping in her womb. And, and presumably she would have said something to Zechariah, but... That's the sort of thing you kind of keep in the family, isn't it? Until they start to manifest some evidence of the, the indication. There's a danger to the children. I mean, people could freak out and want well, to kill them. Well, he said it was about his father's business when he was When he was 13, yeah, yeah. But by then I he thought was, he was 12. Or, or 12, yeah, that's right. But by then, in Hebrew culture, Jewish culture, he was a young man. I mean, he probably had had his bar mitzvah. By 12, he would have. Um, um, it says at one point that Mary ponders, ponders these things in her heart. She's very fascinated by this, and she considers what she sees, but she doesn't, she doesn't articulate them. She doesn't tell people about them. You know, it makes me wonder: Does Mary and do Mary and Joseph exchange stories of Annunciation? There's no indication they ever did. This is a good question as to as to uh, if if they had or had not. Do they do they know who it is that they're raising? Well, she did a good job. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You have been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2009 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org.
you are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.